the announcements, uh, let's get into the Word. Um, grab your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be this morning in verses 16 through 23. You can find that on page 984 in the Pew Bible. I'm excited to be back with you all. I hear Pastor Peter did an excellent job last week. I hope you found that um, edifying. Um, but I, uh, I'm excited to get back in and finish up the second chapter of this book, finally. And we'll be on to chapter 3 um, next week. But I love the book of Colossians because, in my opinion, it is the most concise and condensed and most clear picture of Jesus Christ and who He is and what He has done. And that's what these whole first two chapters have been about. Here, Paul has been saying, here's Christ, here's who he is, believe, know him. Right? Before you can know what to do, you have to know what is true. Before we can rightly understand the imperatives, what we are to do, we have to rightly understand the indicatives, what God has already done. Well, we're now to the imperative part of the letter. Paul has explained the gospel, now he is applying the gospel. Now he's showing you how the gospel plays out in your day-to-day -day life. And before he tells you what to do, starting in chapter 3, he's going to first tell you here what not to do. Before he tells you how to live in light of the gospel, he's going to first tell you who not to listen to in light of the gospel. Look at chapter 2, verse 8 again. In verses 16 through 23, Paul is unpacking and explaining verse 8. Verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to Christ, according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. All right, so we're back to the dangerous false teaching that is facing the Colossians and us. Paul says, don't be taken captive by it. It's, it's empty. It's deceiving. It's according to man. And most importantly, it's not according to Christ. Then he took verses 9 through 15. He expounds again on the glories of Jesus Christ. Don't listen to them. Look to him. Look to Christ. Look at how great he is. There's nothing else. He is God. He is fullness. Thus you'll find your fullness only in him. Nowhere else. And now in verse 16, he's back to explaining more specifically, what is this false teaching? What he calls in verse 23, self-made religion. It's become cool in recent years to say that Christianity is not a religion, but it's a relationship. Um, now, I get what people are trying to say, but... That's a bit silly. Of course, Christianity is a religion. What is a religion? At its most basic, religion is simply a system of belief. Generally, belief in a god or gods. Well, obviously, Christianity is that. It's Christianity. It's all about Christ, who we, of course, believe to be God. So yes, Christianity is a religion, and historically, religion hasn't been a bad word. Probably the most important book written in all of church history after the Bible is Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. The most important book written in American church history is Jonathan Edwards' Religious Affections. James 1.27 talks about religion that is pure and undefiled before God. Christianity is a religion. So the question is not, is it a religion? The question is, is it the right religion? Does it come from man or from God? Is it self-made or is it God-made? 
In these verses, we're going to look at three isms, three of the most prevalent self-made religions that we have a tendency to fall back into. These are three of the main ways that we tend to obscure the gospel of Jesus Christ and go after other things. We're going to look at legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. Paul wants you to stay away from all three of these. Paul wants you to see how dangerous they are. Paul wants you to see how they are of no value to you because they draw you away from Christ. So my prayer this morning is that we would see how common these are, that we would see how every one of us in here has a tendency to struggle with at least one of these, and maybe all Three. Listen, if you're in this room, you are a recovering legalist. That's all of us. You may also struggle with a temptation toward mysticism. You may be drawn to the power of asceticism. We will see ourselves in these things, but I hope that we would then see how Christ, how the gospel is so much better. Don't fall back into self-made religion. That's Paul's main point. And in the spirit of these imperatives, remember Paul is now commanding us. I had a little fun there with your outline. I couldn't resist it. Three alliterative imperatives, three commands. Paul tells us to love not legalism, to mind not mysticism, and to abide not asceticism. Come on, that's pretty good. That's, come on, that's, that's a good outline. Um, let me read it for you. Who cares about the outline? Who cares what I had to say? Let's see what God's word says. I'll read it for you, and then we'll start to walk through it. Um, you can follow along in your copy of the scripture as I read for you. Colossians 2, starting in verse 16 to verse 23. This is God's word. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's begin first uh, with a word of prayer. Father, I am so thankful for your word. Father, I thank, I'm thankful that you are the God who speaks. And Father, you are the God who reveals himself. And Father, you have revealed yourself to us so clearly in a book. Father, you have given us your word. These are not dead words, but we believe that these words are living and active. We believe that by your spirit, these words can change lives and can bring um, dead sinners back to life. So, Father, I pray that now as we come to hear from you and to hear from your word, Father, we humbly ask and beg of your spirit to do his work. And Father, I can accomplish nothing. You can accomplish great things. So, Father, I ask for you to speak. Help us to understand our tendency towards these self-made religions. Father, help us to understand how much better is your son, Jesus Christ. And I ask and I pray this in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to start with legalism. <clears throat> Love not legalism. You see it in verse 16. 
Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. The first word is therefore. It's one of Paul's favorite linking words pointing you back. What he's telling you now is connected to what he has just told you. In light of the truth of verses 8 through 15, therefore, verse 16, in light of who Christ is and what he has done, therefore, don't let anybody tell you what you have to do in these areas. What areas? Well, the focus seems to be on two main categories. We're talking about diet and days, food and drink, festivals and Sabbath. So while it's difficult to discern the exact nature of the false teaching that is confronting the Colossians, I think it's pretty clear here that there is a Jewish flavor to this teaching. So it seems that these false teachers were saying, that, hey, if you guys really want to follow God, if you really want to experience spiritual fullness, well then hey, you need to keep the Old Testament ceremonial laws concerning diet and days. If you keep those laws, you'll be closer to God. Now again, listen, they're not just completely making stuff up, right? False teaching isn't usually blatant, outright error. Right? These guys didn't come in and say, hey guys, you know, Paul Paul made a mistake. Just wanted to let you know it's, it's Zeus, not Jesus. Zeus is the one that you were supposed to be worshiping. No, of course, these guys didn't do dumb things like that. That wouldn't have worked. It's too absurd. The danger with false teaching is that it is subtle error. It takes the truth and it gives it just this little bit of a twist. Right? There are laws in the Old Testament about diet and days. There were clean and unclean food. There were festivals and there were Sabbaths. And Old Testament Israel was required to keep those laws. The problem is, is that New Testament Israel, the church, was not. Why? Verse 17 is why. Look at verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Shadow and substance. Substance is better than shadow. If I went out after the service um, and my lovely wife was standing there and I ran over to her and then I got down and I gave her shadow a big kiss, that would be weird, right? It's a pretty good looking shadow. It's got a nice shape to it. Um, but why mess around with the shadow? Is that inappropriate? I apologize. Um, but, uh, why mess around with the shadow when the substance is right there, shadow's nice, substance better, right? I should focus on the substance. That's what these Old Testament ceremonial laws were. They were shadows of which Christ is the substance. And a basic misunderstanding of this point leads to much general understanding about the Bible. So people will consistently accuse us of being inconsistent. Well, you guys can't say that something like homosexuality is a sin um, because the Old Testament says you can't eat pork and you guys really love your bacon, so you're hypocrites, right? If you're going to eat bacon, then you have to affirm homosexuality. Well, again, they don't understand the law. We don't have time to get into it in great detail here, but there are aspects of the law which Christ completes, and there are aspects of the law which Christ continues. And the distinction is generally made in terms of the ceremonial law and the moral law. The ceremonial law being such things as diets and days and, and sacrifices, the moral law usually being summarized in the Ten Commandments. The ceremonial law is fulfilled in Christ and in a very real sense is done away for us. 
the moral law is fulfilled in Christ and in a very real sense is reaffirmed for us. So this is why we read Mark 7 earlier in the service. Right? If you were paying attention there, Jesus teaches that nothing that's outside of you, nothing that you eat and then take inside of you can defile you. And then Mark explains what Jesus means there in verse 19. Thus he declared all foods clean. No more ceremonial law. But Jesus goes on to say, what comes out of the heart of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, etc. Well, those are all aspects of the moral law, which is still in force. So ceremonial law, diet and days, done away with. Moral law never Changes. The ceremonial law existed only to point us forward to Jesus Christ. So, for example, the sacrifices, you read the book of Leviticus, and what is this about, and all the blood, and all the dying, and all these specific rules? Well, then praise God that we don't have to do that anymore, because the point of the animal sacrifices was to point us to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Right? The sacrifices taught that sin is terrible, that sin is bloody and awful, that it demands death, but that God provides a substitute, right? something to die in our place. We sin, something else dies. That's the gospel. That's ultimately Jesus Christ. The substance has come, so no more shadows. So Paul says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you in terms of diet or days. Don't let anyone tell you what you have to or what you must not do concerning these things. Because to do so would be legalism. Now, the word legalism never shows up in these verses. In fact, the word legalism never shows up in the whole Bible. So why are we talking about it? What is legalism? Well, most people would define legalism as trying to earn salvation by doing good works or keeping the law of God to earn the love of God. And that's a fine definition. They wouldn't be wrong. Uh, but the real danger of legalism, again, is the subtlety of legalism. I'm fairly confident that most of you would not say, I'm trying to earn salvation by being good enough. Well, none of you would say that. But I'm also fairly confident that most of you are legalists, because we all are. We are all legalists at heart, whether we know it or not. Sinclair Ferguson is a pastor. The name, write it down, get anything that he writes. Um, he's a Scottish theologian. He actually just retired uh, to a part-time role at a church in Dundee, Scotland, where Andrew Matheson, our missionary, served there. He's just down the road um, from him. Go read Ferguson's book on the Holy Spirit. Go read his book on sanctification. Uh, but most importantly, go read his book called The Whole Christ. And in this book, he writes that the root of legalism is almost as old as Eden, which explains why it is a primary, if not the ultimate pastoral problem. He says the ultimate problem in your life is legalism. So if it's something more than just trying to earn our salvation, what is it? And why is it so dangerous? Why? Well, most generally, we can define it like this. Legalism is any teaching that diminishes or distorts the generous love of God and the full freeness of his grace. Anything that diminishes the full freeness of God's grace. Legalism is looking to anything other than Jesus Christ to make us acceptable before God. 
So these false teachers are saying, hey, to really experience God's favor, to get that fullness, you need to make sure and keep these laws about diet and days. To be a good Christian, you can't eat this, you can't drink that, you better do this, and you better do that. Man, how relevant is that? How prevalent is such teaching today? It's everywhere. The church is littered with legalism. Now again, I'm not talking about doctrinal legalism. Doctrinal legalism says keep the law, do good work so that you can be saved. That's simply non-Christian. right? That's what Roman Catholicism teaches. It's basically what every other religion teaches. Do it, Be a good person. Do enough good things so that you can be saved. That's not what we're talking about. right? I'm not concerned about doctrinal legalism for you guys. I'm concerned about practical legalism. And practical legalism is our tendency to regard as divine law things which are never required or are never forbidden in Scripture. And then our corresponding tendency to look down on anyone who doesn't do the same thing that we do. You may proclaim that you are only saved by grace, but you live like you stay saved by keeping your own version of the law. And this manifests itself in many ways. Let's, let's see if I can offend everyone while trying to convince you that you have a legal heart. Let's, let's run through a couple of these. Uh, if you think that your form or style of worship is better or more holy than others, then you might be a legalist. If you think that it's more holy to only sing hymns and to look down on anything written in the last hundred years, then you might be a legalist. If you think, um, in the same way, that if only rock show contemporary Christian music with the lights and the fog and the drums is better because it's more spirit-filled or it's more alive, and you look down on all those old boring dead hymns and the people who love them, you might be a legalist. If you think that you're a better Christian than that girl who has tattoos or that guy who has earrings or long hair, well, then you might be a legalist. If you look down on that Christian on Facebook that you saw having a glass of wine, Christian, uh, having a glass of wine at dinner, then you might be a legalist. If you think that you're more spiritual because you wear your Sunday best every week and you look down on those pagans who wear jeans and t-shirts, then you might be a legalist. If you think that you're more spiritual and look down on others because they aren't as disciplined as you are in your Bible reading or your prayer or your church attendance, well, man, then you might be a legalist. If you've been thinking for the last few minutes, man, so-and-so really needs to hear this talk about legalism, then you might be a legalist, right? Let's, let me be very clear. We are all recovering legalists. We all have things that we love that we elevate to law. We all have a tendency to take our personal preferences and require other people to live up to them. We all take extra biblical things, the traditions of men, and make them into the commandments of God. The Bible never prescribes a specific worship style for us. I love hymns. I love good news songs. It's not the style that matters. It's the substance. It's the lyrics. It's the truths that are being proclaimed. Style is negotiable. Truth is not. Here's one. I'm going to get in trouble. Fine. Uh, I've been here five years. Uh, the Bible never says it's a sin to drink alcohol. Never. In fact, the Bible unequivocally affirms the goodness of alcohol. Psalm 104 is all about the great things that God has done and all the wonderful gifts he has given, including verse 15, wine to gladden the heart 
of man. Joel 2.24 is about the great blessings that God is going to give. The vats shall overflow with wine. Same in Proverbs 3.10. Your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. It's a sign of God's blessing. Judges 9.13 talks about wine that cheers God. And man, Jesus turns water to wine in his first miracle and partakes throughout his ministry regularly and joyfully. I could go on and on and on, but the Bible is undeniably clear that wine is good. It is undeniably equally clear that drunk is bad, but abuse does not negate proper use. Abuse does not negate proper use. When Baptists write abstinence into their church covenants, and then when we look down on those who enjoy in moderation what the Bible calls good and a blessing from God, we're being legalists. We are calling evil something that God calls good. We are requiring something that the Bible never does. Listen, there are all kinds of good reasons to abstain. If you do that, great, do it. I think there's wisdom in that in some occasions, but you can't get a biblical precedent and say, I don't drink because it's not holy or because it's bad or because it's wrong. That's legalism, right? I'll talk to you guys afterwards about that, I'm sure. Um, the Bible also never prescribes a dress code, right? Jesus probably spent his life wearing what today would basically be a dress. Um, when I first started ministry at North Shore six years ago, I didn't own a suit. I had to borrow it um, from one of my former roommates. Suits are not my thing. Now, I happily wear suits because I believe that for our current context, it's helpful. But be careful if you come and tell me I have to wear a suit because it's more godly, you'll find me up here next week in jeans and a Carolina hoodie. Right? That's what I'll <laughs> preach in um, next week, right? Don't take your preferences and make them commands. Right? Don't go beyond the scriptures. Right? Don't look at all these extra biblical things to define what it means to be a Christian. Jesus is what, it def is what defines what it means to be a Christian. God's word is what defines what it means to be a Christian. We don't need anything else. We don't need more. Where are you a practical legalist? Right? What are your non-negotiables? Are they biblical? What are you looking to outside of Christ, outside of the word, to identify you, to define you, and to give you fullness? What are the things that you do or don't do that make you feel more holy, more spiritual, closer to God, and better than all those other people? Guys, legalism is deadly. Why? Because at the heart of legalism is unbelief. It is a distortion of the graciousness of God and of the God of grace, right? You have a belief problem. You believe wrongly about God. You're not looking at him as a good and generous and gracious father, but as a harsh and demanding taskmaster. We have this tendency to look to God as he whose favor has to be earned, but that's not God. And to do so is so dangerous because it's to deny the gospel, where Jesus says it is finished, your legalism says, well, just a little bit more. Where Jesus says, I have atoned for you, your legalism says, I have to attain for you. Right? If there is anything left for you to do, any law keeping, anything that you have to earn, then Christ's work was not sufficient. Right? Legalism is a denial of the sufficiency of the cross. It is an, an implicit attempt to add your work to Christ's work, which proves that you don't believe that Christ's work is enough. 
As we talk a lot about repentance here, and as we should, but when we think of repentance, we generally think only of repenting of the bad stuff. That's not the whole story, though, right? Part of the beginning of repentance, maybe you're here this morning, uh, aware of your lingering legalism, wondering why you haven't quite figured this Jesus thing out yet. Well, maybe you need to consider your need to repent of your righteousness, of your insistence that there is something good in you, your belief that your good record, your morality, your religious performance will in some way please God. It won't. <laughs> it can't. Only Christ can please God, and we please God only when we are in Christ. Sometimes we need to repent of our sin and repent of our self-righteousness, our silly little attempts to justify ourselves and to prove ourselves before God. Legalism is lethal because it is a denial of the love of our Lord. Legalism is fatal because it is a failure to rest in the grace of God. Jesus paid it all. That's, it stops there. That's it. There's nothing left to pay or nothing left to do. Love, not legalism. Don't let people pass judgment on you on all these extra biblical things. They have no biblical warrant. They have no right. Stick to Jesus. Stick to the word. He and it is enough. Next point. These next two will be shorter because legalism is the more prevalent problem. Number two, mind not mysticism. Look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. First was let no one pass judgment. Now it's let no one disqualify. Disqualify you on what grounds? Well, I think on the grounds of mysticism. What in the world is mysticism? It's a notoriously difficult word to define. People define it in many different ways. It means different things to different people. So again, I'm not going to be able to be exhaustive or to be able to satisfy everyone here. But for our purposes, here's how I'm going to define mysticism. Mysticism is extra-biblical expectation of emotional experience. Extra-biblical expectation of emotional experience. I came up with that one too, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to copyright that one. Extra, extra biblical expectation of emotional experience. Right, let me defend and define uh, that definition. First, it is extra biblical. So Paul says there, let no one disqualify you. Paul would never say that about something Biblical, about something central and necessary, something non-negotiable. So, for example, in Galatians 1, Paul says that he is astonished that they are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another gospel. And he goes on to say that if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. The gospel is biblical. It's non-negotiable. There's no room for disagreement. It's the gospel or nothing. Not so with these mystical experiences. They are extra-biblical. They are going beyond what is clearly commanded and prescribed in the Word, which is something that we never want to do. Paul commands the church in 1 Corinthians 4.6. He says, do not go beyond what is written. It's one of the most important things that Paul ever wrote. Do not go beyond what is written. If we could just stick to that one principle, man, we would save ourselves a lot of heartache and a lot of ridiculousness. Much that parades itself as Christian today would be done away with if we would just not go beyond what is written. If we would just stick 
to the scriptures, right? It's God's word. If it is God's word, and it is his perfect and sufficient revelation of himself, if it is God speaking to us, man, why would we want or need anything else? So first, mysticism is extra biblical. Second, it is an expectation. The next word in verse 18, he says, insisting. Right? These false teachers were insisting on something that wasn't biblical. They're creating an expectation of what they thought should be the norm of the Christian life. Look for this. Right? If this is what you need, if you're not experiencing this, then you're missing out. Be wary of anyone who tells you what the Christian life is supposed to be like if they can't point you to Scripture and tell you why and give you a chapter and verse number. Unbiblical, unrealistic expectations will crush you, right? It's an expectation. Next word, mysticism is always emotional. Look at the end of verse 18. Puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. The word translated sensuous most literally means uh, fleshly or, or unspiritual. It's, it's the carnal mind separated from God. A mind that frequently finds itself a slave to its emotions. Emotions that are fickle and frequently fluctuating with the ever-changing tide of circumstances. Listen, again, emotions are good. Emotions are biblical. Rightly ordered emotions are a wonderful thing. The problem is that we sometimes take those and then make them the main thing. And we, we demand them. We, when we expect some sort of specific emotional response, we then invest those responses with this unprecedented spiritual authority. I feel, therefore I am. I have a warm, fuzzy feeling, therefore I am experiencing God. I don't have some sort of warm, fuzzy feeling, therefore I must be distant from God. What? That's not anywhere in the scripture. Faith is how we experience God, right? Don't demand something that is never promised. Don't be like the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18 who whipped themselves up into this emotional frenzy. They're dancing and they're, they're chanting. They're, they're cutting themselves. They're certain that their emotion and that their zeal will earn their God's attention. Mysticism is always emotional. And our final word, it's what those prophets of Baal were doing. They were looking for and trying to create some sort of experience, an experience of, of something. So verse 18 talks about these false teachers insisting on the worship of angels and the importance and the legitimacy of visions. Now, we're not entirely sure what Paul means there by the worship of angels. Most simply, it could mean they were just literally worshiping the angels. Again, that's so clearly wrong and unbiblical that it's unlikely that that's what was happening. There's a few times in Scripture where people are tempted uh, to worship angels and the angels quickly uh, correct them. So that's probably not what Paul is talking about here. Well, many people think that Paul is not talking about worshiping angels, but the worship of the angels, as the New American Standard translates it. Meaning the people weren't trying to worship the angels themselves, they were trying to worship like the angels, or they were trying to worship with the angels. They think these false teachers were insisting on some sort of extra-biblical, hyper-spiritual, angelic worship. To me, that sounds like what people try to do today with 1 Corinthians 13 and 14. Right? Paul there uses intentional exaggeration, and he sarcastically talks about the tongues of angels. 
even if I speak in the tongues of angels, he says. Right? Some people will try and look at that and say, well, look, well, that's, that's charismatic tongues. We don't understand what they're saying because it's, it's angel talk. Well, and that's not what Paul means at all. Every time in Scripture an angel talks, it's a human language. Paul, in that chapter, is being sarcastic, and we know that he's being sarcastic. He says, even if I speak in the tongues of angels, again, which I don't. He says, even if I have all prophetic powers, which I don't. Even if I understand all mysteries, which I don't. If I have all knowledge, again, which, which I don't. He's making a point. He's saying, without love, all of these things, as great as they would be, would be worthless. He's not talking about some magical angel language that he speaks. He specifically is saying that he doesn't speak in such a thing. Tongues are human languages every time. So again, don't go beyond what is written. There's no need for anything extra biblical. Paul's whole point in this letter is that Christ is so good that all you need is him and nothing else, right? Don't Try and look for some sort of super secret special angel worship. God tells us how to worship him in spirit and in truth, according to his word. You don't need anything else. And then there's no need for visions. He talks about these guys going on in detail about their visions. You know, Paul does actually have a vision in 2 Corinthians 12. You know what he says? Can't tell you about it. So don't, don't even ask me. So I'm not going to talk about it. Right? There were occasions, there were rare occasions in Scripture where God speaks to his people in visions, but there is nowhere in Scripture where we are told to look for or to expect such things. God also spoke through a donkey, but I don't hear anyone saying we should look for God to talk to us through a donkey. In fact, I think we're specifically told not to look for these things because I believe that Scripture says God no longer does those things. Hebrews 1 tells us that. Now, he writes, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Long ago, many ways, now, one way, Jesus Christ his son. And where do we find Christ? We find him in his word, right? And only in his word. The word which is able to make us wise unto salvation. The word that is able to make us complete. The word that faith comes from. The word that is the power of God for salvation. Do not go beyond what is written. If there is something else, if there's more speaking, more revealing, more whatever, then the word is not and cannot be sufficient. You don't need anything else. You don't need visions. You don't need dreams. I've had a couple people ask me lately what I think about dreams. Uh, listen, I don't think that God is speaking to you um, in your dreams. Uh, if he is, I'm in trouble uh, because I'm a terrible person in my wife's dreams. I'm always abandoning her and always breaking up to her. We're doing all these awful things. If God is speaking to her, then I'm done. Also, if God is speaking to her in her dreams, then I need to be on alert for an imminent alligator attack. Um, because that was Melissa's last dream, was that I was attacked by an alligator. Um, so please let me know if you see one lurking around. No, you don't need visions. You don't need dreams. You have the word of God, right? You have God speaking to you and recording it perfectly from starting over 3,000 years ago where he talks about his son and he talks about his love for you and reveals himself to you as who he is and how gracious and good and kind he is. Why would you want anything else? Do not mind mysticism. I do not fall prey to this extra-biblical expectation for emotional experience. The whole point of the letter is that Christ 
is enough. We know him by faith. I believe, again, faith, I think I lead by God's grace to the field at times, but faith is the focus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is how we are connected to Christ. It is how we know him. It is how we rest in him. It is how we experience him. Right? So mind not mysticism. Do not go beyond what is written. Number three, got to move quickly. Uh, abide not asceticism. Verse 18 starts off by saying, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Then jump down to verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? Asceticism. Avoid it. What is it? Just think of that word, avoid. Or think of the word, abstain. That's that's asceticism. Asceticism is an extremely strict self-denial that often then ends up expressing itself in creation denial and physical denial and, and all kinds of other weird denials. Paul describes it well with his sarcastic summary of its teaching. Do not handle, do not taste, uh, do not touch. Asceticism operates under the mistaken notion that the problem is out there. Right? So it becomes very behaviorally and externally Focus. There's evil out there, so if we can just keep that evil from getting in here, we'll be all right. And that's how fundamentalism has tended to operate. And it's so closely connected to the legalism that we discussed earlier. It's all about separation. Don't listen to secular music. Don't watch movies. Don't go to the theater. Don't drink alcohol. Don't dress in that way. Separate yourself from the world. Do those things, and you'll be holy. What does Paul think of this approach to holiness? The end of verse 23. It is of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. Doesn't work. Why not? Well, what we just read in Mark 7 is why not. The modern day fundamentalist has slipped into the exact same error as the ancient day Pharisee. Jesus says there in Mark 7 that there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. For from within, out of the heart of man comes evil. Asceticism sees the problem as out there, thus asceticism is of no value because it has misdiagnosed the problem. Right? The problem is not outside of you. Your problem is inside of you. Your problem is not the world. Your problem is you. Not handling, not tasting, not touching, separating from is of no help because you are the problem. I am the problem. Our sin is the problem. We are so obsessed with the problems out there. We think government's the problem. We think the culture's the problem. We think the liberals are the problem. Or whatever group out there on Facebook that really makes you mad, that bothers you. We get so caught up in being mad at unregenerate sinners who, guess what, act like unregenerate sinners. We so try to solve the problems out there or hide from the problems out there that we tend to completely miss the fact that we are the problem. The greatest danger to you is not the world. It's not the devil. It's you. Parents, the greatest danger to your children, it's not the world, uh, it's not TV, it's not the devil, it's them, <laughs> it is their sin. The problem is not outside of you, it's inside of you. It is your sinful, selfish heart. So all of these rules and regulations, don't do this and don't do that and, and don't touch this and don't touch that, they're of no value because they don't touch the one thing that matters. They don't touch your heart. 
All three of these self-made religions are worthless because they can't solve the one problem that matters, yourself. We talk about self-discipline and self-awareness and self-fulfillment and self-esteem and self-actualization and self-help. None of it helps because self is at the center of all of them. All of it leads to the worship of self, which is ironic and tragic because, again, it's the very self that is the problem. That's why the very concept of self-help is so ridiculous. The very thing you're trying to help is self. How is self going to help the self? It's, it's unbroken. It, it is broken. It's sinful. Yourself needs a savior. That's why there's thousands of new self-help books every year because none of them work. We know that we have a problem, but we're blind to the one solution that actually helps self. And so we just continue on from one bad to the next, all of it focused on self. You need to shift your focus from self to Savior. If your problem is inside of you, you need someone outside of you who does not have that same problem to come inside of you and fix you. Look at verse 19. Let's close with this. Here's the cause of the failure of all of these self-made religions because they weren't doing this one thing. They were hopeless. Thus, if we do do this one thing, we will find great hope. Verse 19, they were not holding fast to the head. That's it. There's your application. Here's the opposite of self-made religion. Here is your only hope. Hold fast to the head who is Christ. That's it. That's the whole point of this letter. Don't look to anything else. Look to him because he came to solve your self problem, your sin problem, your heart problem. Your problem was or is inside of you a dead heart. Jesus came for the very purpose of bringing that dead heart back to life, to give to you a new heart. He came to pay the penalty for your sin by dying in your place. He came to give you life through his death. Legalism, mysticism, asceticism are of no help to you. Only Christ. And the only way that you get Christ is by grace through faith. He is the gift of God. The free gift received by the free gift of faith. Hold fast to him. And by that I simply mean trust and put your faith, your, your hope, your life in his hands. That's, that's it. Like we, have, we just have such a tendency to try and complicate things. Right? We, we see God's law, we set up fences around it so we make sure we won't get close. And we add and we build and we complicate and we make it so crazy and ridiculous. Quit looking to get holy quick schemes. Quit falling back into these man-made, self-made religions that are of no value. The point of this letter is that Christ is of full value. And the only way that we get him and know him is by grace through faith. And that is enough. Learn to delight in him. And learn to delight in him by dwelling on him. And dwell on him by beholding him and behold him in his word. As Robert Murray McShane so famously said, for every one look at yourself. Take ten looks at Christ. Live near to Jesus Christ and all the things will appear little to you in comparison with eternal realities. I love that.
quote. As a person who tends to be introspective and tends to be self-focused and tends to focus on me and beat myself up over little things, I need the reminder that for every one look at self, take ten looks at Christ. Turn your focus outward. And you're struggling because you're focused on yourself or you're focused on your immediate circumstances. If you can shift by God's grace that focus outward to him and to what he has done and to the eternal security you have in him on the big picture Jesus Christ, that will change everything. Hebrews 12 2 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Spiritual life, spiritual growth, spiritual change, identity, meaning, happiness, fullness, all of it comes from the Lord. Paul's point is simply fix your eyes on him and nothing else. It's that simple. Let's close uh, with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for this pointer, again, from Paul uh, to Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for Paul's complete and unflagging uh, love for Jesus. I thank you for how single-minded he was and how he constantly brought us back to the main thing, which is Christ and him crucified which is uh, Jesus Christ um, living, rising, or living, dying, and rising again in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. Father, forgive us for how quick we are to look to other things. And Father, forgive us for how dissatisfied we are with this basic good news of the gospel. Father, I pray that we would find great hope and great delight in the good news of what Jesus Christ has done to rescue us. I pray that we would never tire of it or never bore of it, Father. I pray that we would dig down deeper into it and, and plant our roots there in Jesus Christ. Father, I just ask again right now, that you would do um, for us what we cannot do for ourselves. I ask that you would accomplish um, right now in a moment what I cannot accomplish in an hour, Father. I ask that you would give us a growing love um, for Jesus Christ. Father, stir our affections and stir our love uh, for Jesus. And Father, help us to see him as so infinitely superior to all of these um, self-made religions. And Father, teach us uh, to rest in Christ. And I ask this in his name. Amen.